0: Amen. Amen. I want to invite you to open up your Bible. If there's one in front of you in the pews, you can use an app on your phone. We want to dive into God's Word as we begin. Again, this brand new sermon series on the hope of the resurrection. We'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 today, starting with verse 12. Now, in order to get our heads around this, to really understand What the text was saying to the original hearers, we have to know something a little bit about what it was like in those days. This is around 55 AD, just 30 some years after Jesus rose from the grave. What was it like in those days, the culture in which the people lived? What was their worldview? What did they think about? What drove their decisions, their morality? We'll start with this, the city of Corinth itself. And Corinth at this time is one of the most wealthy cities in all of Rome, in the entire Roman Empire. You can see there in the background, that's the Temple of Apollo, a huge, giant temple that was built with tax money that came in because Corinth itself sat on the ithmus between northern Greece and southern Greece, and great wealth flowed through that part of the world. In addition to being a very wealthy city, uh, like many other Roman cities, Corinth believed in a lot of different gods, including Apollo. They worship Poseidon, god of the sea, Aphrodite, a fertility goddess. And even though in most of the Roman cities, religion was a very, very important thing, it certainly was in Corinth, it actually wasn't, many scholars believe, what drove the thinking, what drove the morality of their decisions. Instead, there were two philosophical ideas two philosophical groups that really had everybody uh, listening and, and teaching them how to think and what to believe. The first was called the Epicurean philosophy, Epicureans over here and Stoics over here. And I know I'm going to bore some of you to death, so you know, we'll try to make this exciting. But the Stoics or sorry, let's start with the Epicureans. They believed that you should not fear irrational things. They taught that. And so therefore at least in our context for today, talking about the resurrection, they taught that you should not fear death. You shouldn't fear death because it was irrational. They taught that death was just something that happens to everybody. Death is a friend. And when you die, there is no soul. There is no bodily resurrection. You're just done. You dissipate into the ether of the world. That was the Epicurean thought. And so it drove them to follow, first of all, pleasure above other things. They tried to minimize pain, live a life of pleasure, and it's out of that idea where we got at the very end of our reading today from first corinthians where paul says let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die that was the worldview of the day Then there was the stoics now the stoics were slightly different than the epicureans they believed more strongly in wisdom they taught that if you could observe the natural world in which we live if you follow the universe use your brain you can obtain freedom You can attain autonomy simply by following what you see in nature. And so they were very proud of their wisdom. That's where we get our understanding, or the word today we call somebody stoic if they're a stalwart in their beliefs and they're unmovable. These were the stoics, except they believed that the body stayed dead, but your soul, your spirit, would go back up into the universe or be with the God. So they believed in a type of spiritual resurrection But it's really important for us to understand that in that culture and in that time, both camps, both the Stoics, both the Epicureans, believed strongly that it was impossible for a body to rise from the dead. It was childish talk, it was foolish nonsense to believe that a human being, once put in the grave, could come back alive again. And then all of these worldviews, the Stoic philosophers, the Epicurean philosophers, they were grounded in, and the truth Their truth was spread throughout the country by a group of people called the Sophists. And Sophists were intellectual giants. They were the very wealthy elite of society. They were masters in the gift or the skill of rhetoric. They could debate and they could argue their point masterfully you had no chance against a sophist if you had a argument that you wanted to present and if you wanted a job in the city especially an elite job like a politician a lawyer a doctor you had to hire for yourself one of these sophists to learn how to rationalize and argue the way in which everybody understood they were masters in rhetoric now why am i telling you all this I'm telling you all this so that you can understand, again, where the worldview, the people who were in that city in Corinth, how they thought, why they thought it, and then to imagine this the Apostle Paul walking into, in this case, we'll go a few miles north to Athens, and he has a conversation with these intellectually elite people. This is what happens when he walks into Athens a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with Paul, and some of of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? You can see what they thought of Paul's worldview at first. What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. That was in Athens. But then a few months later, he travels down south to corinth and he sets up a shop in the marketplace paul's basically a street preacher at this point he starts arguing his point and believe it or not despite the fact that what paul was saying when he preached is that everything that you believe about religion everything you understand about god every decision that you make based on your worldview and your culture all of it a hundred percent of it is absolutely fundamentally wrong (laughs) You can imagine Paul was a big deal at parties. You know, he walked in and was like, oh, Paul's here, great. <laughs> and he did all that based on what we read in our scriptures today. Everything of Paul's argument, every fundamental step, every stream of consciousness that comes from Paul's thought is resting on the belief and the truth that scripture claims that Jesus Christ rose from the dead that's his argument and in corinth we know at least actually people responded to the message favorably the text tells us in acts chapter 18 that paul goes uh, to a man's house named titus Justus, a worshiper of god uh, his entire family is converted they get baptized and then many of the corinthians hearing paul believed and were baptized the gospel spread greatly through corinth in fact paul ends up staying there a year and a half but then he goes away on another missionary journey, and we know from other, gospel, or from other epistles that three years later, 55 AD, Paul gets word from some in the church that it was actually being taught in the Corinthian church that there was no such thing as a resurrection of the dead, and that is what inspired Paul to write chapter 15 that we're going to spend the next several weeks studying in depth. So with that, I want to invite you, open up your Bibles, let's dive in, we're going to go verse by verse, and let's decide for ourselves, let's use our critical thinking skills, what is Paul trying to say, not just to the original hearers, but to ourselves today, in our own language, in our own culture. Verse 12, he writes, now if Christ is proclaimed, raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection, from the dead. So we'll stop right there. First of all, we don't know. Was it a pastor? Was it some elders in the church? Was it lay people? Whoever it was, seems that they had been influenced by this Epicurean philosophy, by the Stoic philosophy, that there is no resurrection of the dead. And it's being taught in the churches. And so Paul is going to use the cultural narrative of the day. He understands how the Corinthians think, he understands why they think the way they do, so he's about to use rhetoric. He's using six if-then statements to get them to think critically about what they're saying. And this is the foundation of his argument. He says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then let's think about this critically, then not even Christ has been raised. Christ, who you learned, was true man and true God. You can't have two truths. Either he's dead and he stayed dead, or he was dead and he rose from the dead. You can't have it both ways, Paul's saying. And then he says, if Christ has not been raised, verse 14, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Every Bible study that you've ever been to, every dollar that you've given to the church, every act of charity that through your Christian faith inspired you to love your neighbor and do any kind thing, all of that is wasted. And the sermons that you sat and listened to all these years, and look, if you think we preach long sermons here, oh, the apostle paul in acts he's preaching and it goes so long into the night the bible is a true story in the bible he's preaching all through the night this poor young man is up on the upper roof of this house in a window and he falls asleep falls out of the house and he dies it's a true story the apostle paul has to go down into the house and raise him from the dead because you know it's not really good when you're preaching causes somebody to die it's not good for business And can you imagine, the next day, you come to that church, the next week, if Paul doesn't raise him from the dead, you look in your bulletin, you go, oh, Paul's preaching today. I think I'll watch online. (laughs) So Paul is saying that, listen, all the sermons that you heard, none of that matters at all, and he says in verse 15 that, He's basically a heretic if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. He's a false preacher, which no pastor wants to be accused of. And in 17, he gives us a few more consequences. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That means we still have a sin problem. It means that Jesus is a weak messiah. He wasn't a true messiah if we're still stuck in our sins, if he couldn't rise from the dead, if God didn't have the power to do that. It means that we still have to find a way to somehow through some religion fix the sin problem in our heart, the guilt that we have, the shame that we carry with us. All that returns if Jesus Christ never rose from the dead. And worst off, all of those who have fallen asleep, who have died in the faith, the sacrifices that they made, you're never gonna see him again if Christ hasn't risen from the dead. It's hopeless. You might as well just be an Epicurean. You just go off into the ether. And in verse 19, I think one of the saddest verses in Scripture, he says, if in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Because we've been following a lie. We've been sold a bill of goods. We put our heart and our passion and our trust into a, Basically, fake traveling salesman who wrote a check that he couldn't cash. Paul says, we should be pitied the most if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead. Essentially, if you look at all these verses and you know the context, you understand why Paul's writing this. Really, what the Corinthians had done is they really tried to make Jesus into something else, something a little bit more palatable for the culture. See, believing in the resurrection was so offensive to those people that that they were looking like fools in the eyes of the elite, and so they compromised, and they changed the gospel to make it a little bit easier for people who didn't believe the same way they did to handle that and to receive the gospel. And, you know, my fear is... As we jump back out of that culture and we start thinking about the culture in which we live, that the same thing can happen to us in our own faith as we live in our own kind of cultural soup where we have all these different ideas about death and the afterlife and Jesus. And, you know, the gospel is offensive to some people in our culture. And a couple years ago, I was at a funeral of a neighbor of mine. He was a Christian. He went to a Christian church. He passed away, and we went to the funeral. I walk in, and I see some of my neighbors, and I was really glad that my neighbors were there because I knew through our conversations that they didn't share the same hope that I had in the death and resurrection of Jesus. I'm looking forward to the pastor sharing the gospel in a moment where they are thinking about life and death and maybe even open to the gospel. And the sermon begins, and for 15 minutes... The pastor talked about all the good deeds that my neighbor had accomplished in life. And he used this kind of soft, flowery flowery language about death as our friend and my neighbor's legacy is going to live on forever through the love of all those gathered here. And look, that's true but not once did this pastor mention the gospel of Jesus Christ and the hope of the resurrection something that we could walk away with and actually feel hopeful for and look as a pastor I know you want to hear this I wanted to shake the guy grab the microphone you're done not once did he share the gospel something we can really sink our hope in the absolute truth of what scripture says, and that's in our text where Paul makes the exact same pivot. If you look with me at verse 20, the first part is really the law. It's reminding us what happens if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, but now he's going to point us to the truth. It says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And for Paul, this is a fact. Paul has seen the resurrected Lord. And as Pastor Nay pointed out last week during Easter, there were 500 witnesses who saw Jesus. The disciples who were still alive had seen Jesus. If you don't believe Paul, he said, go ask them. So for Paul, this is a fact. If, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, and that first fruits, this is Old Testament language. Now Paul's getting theological. He's pointing to the Old Testament where God said, if you're a farmer and you've got crops, if you're a rancher, you've got cattle, when you bring those in right when it's harvest time, when it's time to turn in the calves, when they're old enough to be slaughtered, take and set aside 10% for me. This is your first fruits, This is your offering. Because God said, after all, I give you all these things. So so give back to me as a reminder, as a blessing for the things that I've given you. What Paul is saying here is that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the first fruits who get to experience that are those who have died in the faith. Jesus Christ is his own offering. It's an offering for us. And he goes on, again, speaking theologically. For as by a man came death, this is Adam, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive again. And what Paul's pointing us here to, again, is the reality that we inherited this sin problem. And you can't help but that you sin. You inherited it from a man by the name of Adam, the first one to sin. And every human being from this point on has inherited that same sin disease. And Paul's saying, look, because sin came in through one man, The resurrection, a new life is going to come in through one man, Jesus Christ. And so your first resurrection is actually the moment in which you came to faith. If that was at your baptism, it was at a moment when you were hearing God speak through his word a sermon in a bible study in a spiritual conversation that moment when you came to saving faith in jesus christ paul is saying that was actually your first resurrection a resurrection that is spiritual in nature and you were slave or freed from your slavery to sin and then he shows us a foretaste of the feast to come he tells us the ending what's going to happen to us christian paul continues then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is not a friend. Death is an enemy. And what Paul is saying here is that when Christ returns, all the injustice that you've experienced in your life, all the wrong that has gone so far unpunished, all the sadness that you've experienced by the loss of your loved ones who have fallen asleep in Christ, all of that will be undone, and in a blink of an eye will be in the glory of the Lord. That's hope. That's the promise of the resurrection of Jesus Christ for you today. So what do we do? Practically speaking, how might this come from our head down into our hearts well first of all i think practically speaking something we could do is smile a little bit more think about the death and resurrection of jesus on your behalf it actually should cause us to smile in fact last week easter sunday i'm watching a guy we're singing jesus christ has risen again and he's sitting there going which ironically is german for jesus i'm very thankful for your gifts thank you so much Uh, Look, we can smile a little bit more because Jesus Christ died and he rose again and he loves us. He came to do that for you. Let's smile. Let's have some joy in our heart. But then if you are going through a difficult situation, if you're worried about that cancer diagnosis, if you're missing somebody who is close to you that has gone in the Lord and you're worried about them and you're missing them in this world, here's something very practically you can Turn to your Bibles one more time, verse 18 and verse 20. Paul uses very beautiful language here when he's talking about people who have died. He writes, and he calls them those who have fallen asleep. See that in verse 18? Then he says it again in verse 20, those who have fallen asleep. What Paul is doing by using this intentional language is actually pointing us to the reality for those who die in Christ. It's just kind of like they have taken a nap It's like they've taken a nap and if you have any children, maybe this has happened to you, our son JJ sometimes sleeps past his alarm and we have to go in the room, we have to nudge him on the shoulder, say, JJ, it's time to wake up. Those who have fallen asleep in the Lord, you understand the second they breathe their last and they close their eyes in a flash. The first words they heard was that of their Savior Jesus saying, wake up wake up welcome to your home welcome to this place i have prepared for you wake up and we can filter all of our worries our anxieties those who we long for and that we miss filter that through the reality the very first voice they heard was their savior jesus saying wake up welcome home my beloved jesus is risen Hallelujah. He has risen indeed. (laughs) Hallelujah.